tonight we do begin in Matthew chapter 17. And as is true with just about any passage of the Bible, you need to understand something about the context, right? At the end of Matthew chapter 16, Peter made his dramatic declaration, his confession as to who Jesus was. He said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded and said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then Jesus went on to explain about how he would be crucified and he would be arrested and and, uh, that the, the religious leaders of his days would put him to death and that he would die this death in Jerusalem. Well, Peter protested. Jesus rebuked Peter. And at the end of that rebuke, Jesus said something very interesting about this idea of taking up the cross and following him. Let's begin at verse 24 of chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now please notice verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, God is going to show the disciples some of the glory of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom with this next event that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, starting right here at verse 1 of chapter 17. We read, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. It's a pretty dramatic occurrence, isn't it? First of all, we see that Jesus did this with some particular people, with Peter, James, and John. He didn't invite all of the disciples. He invited just these particular three. But perhaps Jesus did this to prevent the account of this amazing miracle of being told before the time was right. Because, we're going to see in verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples, Peter, James, and John, who saw this, I don't want you to say anything to other people about this until after my resurrection. Other people have suggested that the times when Jesus called Peter, James, and John to himself to to, to have special time with him, it wasn't because Jesus favored them anymore, but perhaps Jesus knew that they were the biggest troublemakers and he wanted to keep them closest to himself. Well, I suppose that's possible. Charles Spurgeon suggested that it was the three chosen because Peter was the one who loved his master very much. John was chosen because the master loved him very much. And James was chosen because he would be the first one of the disciples to die a martyr's death. In any regard, six days after Jesus makes this remarkable statement of them seeing the glory of Jesus in his kingdom... They're brought up to this place on this mountain. It says there in verse 1, He led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, we don't know exactly which mountain this was. Some people suggest it was Mount Tabor. The only problem with Mount Tabor is that it's not terribly high. Uh, Then there's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is very high, but it's almost too high. 
If it was on the top of Mount Hermon, it would be in very cold, very difficult conditions. Other people have suggested a mountain called Mount Miron, which is sort of in between, and that might be it. But it's really not all that necessary for us to know the exact location of this. What's more important is what happened, and verse 2 tells us what happened. It says, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured, which by the way is the ancient Greek word metamorpho, which we get our word metamorphosis from. It means a transformation, not merely a change in the outward appearance, but that there was something shining out different from the inside of Jesus, not just from the outside of his appearance. And the effect was so striking that Jesus became so bright in his appearance that it was hard to look at him. Look at it, right? It says in verse 2, his face shone like the sun. You know what the sun looks like, right? It's hard to stare into it. There's a warmth, there's a radiance, there's a power, there's an effect from the sun that, that, that's striking. And as well as that, his clothes became as white as light. You can sort of picture this in your mind, just this, this brilliant radiance. You know, in our modern day with special effects and computer-generated images, you know, CGI that they use in movies and on and on and on, we sort of have a better idea from this, right? Because we've seen similar film effects when we've watched movies. But it would be something very striking like this. It suggests this remarkable change, and perhaps this was the only time in Jesus' ministry when this happened. Although some people make a suggestion, and I wonder about it. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they asked, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answered back, and he said, I am, and they all fell backwards. Some people suggest that Jesus was radiating the same glory at that very same time, and that's what made those hardened soldiers fall back. It very well could have been. But essentially what I want you to see was that this was not a new miracle. This was actually the temporary pausing of an ongoing miracle. Do you know what the real miracle was? The real miracle was that for the most part, Jesus restrained this glory. For the most part, Jesus held it in. Right now, he's just letting it shine forth who he actually is. Please don't think for a moment that Jesus became someone different on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, he just let it shine forth the one who he always was and is. They saw... Something very interesting there. They saw something of the glory that he had before he ever came to earth. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter uh, 17. But turn over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to see what John says about this. It's very interesting to notice that both John and Peter, in their later letters, comment, or their later writings, I should say, comment on this event. Look at what he says here in verse um, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that a powerful description of what John must have experienced at the transfiguration? radiating glory, the same glory that Jesus had before he ever added humanity to his deity and came down to earth in the appearance of a man. The the same glory that Jesus would have later in his resurrected glory and ascended to heaven. 
Here, John and Peter and James, they saw this. And what I want you to understand again, this was almost a smaller matter than for him to restrain or to hide his glory. You could say that it is forever his glory that he hid his glory. And that although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. And again, notice what it says there. Verse 2. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now notice, it was his face that shone like the sun. He wasn't transformed into a different being with a different body. It was his own face that shone. You know, Jesus has his disciples with him at this point. He's not going to reveal his glory unless the disciples can be part of it. And that here he displays that it's his own being, his own body that shines this way. I like something that Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, quote, Another thing which we may learn from this is that Jesus Christ, having shown himself to the apostles this way, robed in his brightness, is that we are scarcely aware of the glory of which the human body is capable. Don't miss that. Jesus was still very much human when this happened. Yet nevertheless, he was humanity in its perfection, outshining with the glory of God. Now, verse 2 isn't enough. Just this vision of Jesus, his face shining like the sun, his clothes radiating this white light. Take a look at verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Isn't it remarkable? Almost how matter-of-factly Matthew puts this. Like, oh, well, doesn't this happen all the time? Haven't you seen Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus as Jesus is radiated with glory? Remarkably, these two Old Testament persons appeared and spoke with the transfigured Jesus. Moses had lived some 1,400 years before this time. Elijah had lived some eight or 900 years before this time. Yet they were alive and they were in some sort of resurrected, glorified state. Now, I find it interesting that it's Moses and Elijah. You could think about there would be many glorious people from the Old Testament who could have appeared with Jesus at this point, right? Why not Abraham? Why not Joseph? Why not David? Why not some of the other great men and women of the Old Testament? No, but on this particular occasion, it was Moses and Elijah. Probably because Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. It's as if it's saying that the sum of Old Testament revelation comes and meets Jesus here on the mountain of transfiguration. You can also say that Moses and Elijah represent those who are caught up to God in a unique way. Moses was caught up to God in a strange way. We don't understand it fully. But Jude chapter 9 tells us that there was some dispute over the body of Moses because God wanted to do something special with it. And and Satan and the archangel Michael had some sort of dispute over the body of Moses. And of course, Elijah himself was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind uh, along with a chariot of fire there at the very uh, thing in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. But more specifically, you could say that Moses represents those who die and go to glory, and Elijah represents those who are caught up to heaven without death. And from this we see, this appearance of Moses and Elijah both, we see here that saints that are long departed are still alive. Right? 
Moses, how long has it been? Oh, about 1,400 years. That's a long time, don't you think? 1,400 years later, Moses is still alive. Moses is doing great. Eight or 900 years later, Elijah's fine. They're still alive, and they are alive in their personality. Can I say this? It's very basic, but sometimes we pass over it. Moses is still Moses. Elijah is still Elijah, right? And they are known by those names. I've often thought about it, haven't you? How did the disciples know that it was Moses and Elijah? They couldn't look it up in a picture book and see pictures of Moses and Elijah. They had no idea. Otherwise, you just knew. You looked at these guys and you knew that's Moses and that's Elijah. I don't think they're wearing name tags. Wouldn't that be funny if we got to heaven and everybody's wearing name tags? Hello, I'm Moses. Hello, I'm Elijah. No, but in heaven, we will know each other. Mine's with a great line, and I, I can't even find it documented anywhere, but I don't really want to find if it's documented. It's one of those things that's, that's too good to check out, so I'll just believe that it's true. Uh, reportedly, somebody once came to Charles Spurgeon and asked him, well, we know each other in heaven. And, and Spurgeon said, well, I can say, yes, we will, on two bases. Number one, they knew who Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? We'll know each other in heaven. But second, he said, well, you don't think you're going to be more stupid in heaven than you are on earth, do you? Well, we know each other on, on earth. We'll know each other in heaven. But most importantly, they enjoyed being near to Jesus Christ. Moses and Elijah, and it says that they're talking with him. Now, what did they talk about? What, what would Moses and Elijah and Jesus all talk about on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, actually tells us the theme of their conversation. It says, that they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his upcoming death and resurrection. That's what they talked about. They, they, they spoke of the upcoming work of the cross, and presumably, I would say, the resurrection to follow. What greater thing could they have to talk about, right? This great thing that, that would find the, the giving the fullest expression to the attributes of God. The, the thing that would fulfill every expectation of the Old Testament. The thing that would solve the problem of the human race, the, the sin of the, the human race, and, and bring salvation to us. The, the thing that would fix broken creation and, and sow the seeds of the new heavens and the new earth. The thing that would bring new unity and reconciliation in the universe. That's what they talked about. And Don't you find it very interesting? Look at verse 3 again. And behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Did, did they talk to Peter, James, or John? No. They have no interest in talking to the disciples. If you had the opportunity to talk to Jesus, I don't think you'd be very interested in talking to one of his disciples. They want to talk with Jesus. They appeared to them, but they talked only with Jesus. Now, such a dramatic occasion is naturally going to bring some reaction from the disciples. And notice here, verse 4. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, that's not a terribly absurd request. Look, Jesus, isn't it wonderful? It's so great. There you three are, three of the greatest men who have ever walked this earth, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Now, Mark chapter 9 
and Luke chapter 9, when they record this incident, they point out for us something that we could have guessed. It says that Peter didn't know what he was saying when he said this. And though he said this without careful thought, the effect of his words put Jesus on an equal level with Moses and Elijah, right? Building equal shrines or tabernacles or tents or shelters for all three of them. Good, you're just one of the three, right? Moses is good. Elijah's good. Jesus is good. And I want you to think about this just for a moment. What a compliment that would be for any other man, right? Wouldn't it be a tremendous compliment for any of us to be put on the same level as Moses and Elijah? There you are, the, the, the three partners, right? The, the three people of God. You know, you, Moses, and Elijah, you would think you would never so highly compliment in your entire life. But do you understand that for Jesus, it's an insult. That would have been great for Peter. Did you understand what Peter said there in verse 4? Lord, it is good for us to be here. Wait a minute, Peter. Have you thought for a moment about your nine friends down the mountain? What about them? No, 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 I don't care about them. I just want to be here. Peter, have you ever thought uh, about the other disciples, the extended group of the disciples? Have you ever thought the whole wide world? No, no, Peter doesn't care about them. It's good for us that we remain here. And let's build you three tabernacles, putting them all on the same level. Now look what happens in verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now the first thing I want you to notice is what appeared to them first was a bright cloud. This cloud is known many times in the Old Testament as the cloud of God's glory, sometimes called the Shekinah. I will have to say, I have heard of people who have seen in our modern day a cloud of God's glory in certain places and at certain times. That God manifests his presence there among them with just some sort of bright, shining cloud that can actually be seen. It certainly happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And from the cloud of God's glory... God the Father spoke. Now, please note, it was from a cloud, right? This was a way of one way of God veiling his presence, right? A cloud sort of obscures things. You can't see it, sort of a fog. As if God is going to draw so near his presence, he's going to do it in a cloud so that his presence can be veiled from sinful man. Then what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. The Father from heaven, he rebuked Peter's attempt to put Jesus on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. And he did it while Peter was still speaking. It was so important to interrupt Peter so that everybody would know that Jesus was the unique and beloved son, that he deserves our special attention so that we're supposed to hear him. I want you to think about what God the Father said from heaven. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. One might say that everything the father said on this occasion was a quotation from the Old Testament. In Psalm uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the father says to the son, you are my son. In Isaiah 42, 1, the father says to the son that he is one in whom my soul delights. Or as Matthew 12, 18 quotes the passage, in whom my soul is well pleased. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, God the Father says through Moses the prophet concerning the coming Jesus, Him you shall hear. Don't you find that fascinating? That when God the Father speaks with an audible voice to heaven as part of the new covenant to the disciples of Jesus, He has nothing new to say. He simply quotes what has already been said in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that show us how powerfully God regards his own words? How hard would it have been for the father to think of something original to say? But he wasn't concerned with originality. He was concerned with reinforcing the principle of his word, of saying, I speak through my word. And even now in this dispensation, I am speaking through my word. Uh, What a great call that is to anybody who is a pastor, anybody who's in ministry, to come back time and time again to the Word of God. One other thing I want you to think about. If God the Father says, this is my son, do you know what that means? I don't mean to sound trite about it. It means that God has a son, right? God the Father has a son. It, It means that when he adopts us into the family of God, it's not because he needs a son. He already has one. Do you know why we are adopted into the family of God? It's not because God needs a son or a daughter. It's because we need a heavenly father. That's why he does it. He already has a son. Now, the command that he gives, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. We should listen to anyone, we should listen to Jesus. You know, one would think that if a voice from heaven spoke, the voice from heaven would say, listen to me. But the Father said, hear him. Everything points back to Jesus. And so it should be. Again, Charles Spurgeon gave a great sermon on this very passage here. And on this whole idea of hearing Jesus, this is what he said. He said, if Peter be our master, let us call him so. If Calvin be our master, let us call him so. And if Wesley be our master, let us call him so. But if we be disciples of Jesus, then let us follow Jesus and follow him with other men only so far as we perceive that they followed Christ. Hear him. Now, what was the reaction of the disciples? Look at verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I find this remarkable. Again, look at verse 6 very carefully. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They didn't fall on their faces when they saw Jesus transfigured before them. They didn't fall on their faces when his face shone like the sun. They didn't fall on their faces when his clothes became white with light. They didn't fall on their faces when Moses and Elijah appeared with him. They didn't fall on their faces when Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus. They didn't even fall on their faces merely when the cloud of glory appeared. But when the voice spoke, spoke from heaven. Look at verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, not saw it, heard it, 
They fell on their faces. Doesn't this show us again something marvelous about the power of the Word of God? Right? All that other phenomenon didn't make them fall on their faces other than this. that They were in the immediate presence of God and hearing the voice of God, they fell down flat before Him. Well, after that, verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The cloud was gone. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. And they were left with Jesus only. Let me ask you, is that a blessing or a curse? To to be left with Jesus only. On the one hand, say, oh, what a disappointment. Where's that cloud of glory? Well, that cloud of glory was very impressive. Or where's Moses? We really like Moses. Where's Elijah? Oh, wonderful Elijah. No, no, no. It was the greatest blessing of all for them that they saw Jesus only. And please remember the context. Listen, if you were one of the disciples of Jesus who had given everything to follow him, and then Jesus looks you after you followed him for a few years and had forsaken everything to be one of his disciples, one of his followers, and Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, listen, my friend, I know you've forsaken everything to follow me, but you know what? My career is coming to an end very quickly. And I'm never going to be the king over Israel, not the way people think I am. Instead, they're going to crucify me. And I'm going to be dead. I'm going to rise again the third day. But I've got to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, executed as if I were a criminal. You'd be thinking, I'm following the wrong guy here. I wanted a guy with a future. I wanted to give up my future to invest it in a man who had a future, not a man who has a death wish. It would be very easy for the disciples to lose their confidence in Jesus at this point. But no, now when they see Jesus transfigured before them, they see his face shining with glory. They they see his clothes as white, as shining with light. And they hear the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then they understand that Jesus is the one for them to focus on. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. The cloud was gone. And they saw Jesus alone. That's a good place to be. You know, we see a lot of things in our lives, right? We we, we see the church. The church is a good thing, is it not? We we, we see the, the church's ministers. We see pastors and elders and leaders within the church. Different teachers. Those are good things, are they not? We see the practical things that God blesses us. We see houses and cars and and financial provision and this and that. We see the little things and the great things that God gives us in this life. But there are times when it seems, and sometimes it's true, it's not only appearance, but it's actually true, that all of those things are swept away. And what are you left with? You're left with Jesus only. And you have to ask yourself, is that enough? Would it be enough if I did not sense the cloud of glory anymore? If I didn't have a Moses or an Elijah speaking into my life? If all of that seemed gone and I was left alone with Jesus alone? And for his disciples, they said, that's fine, that's great. It was good for them to be in that place. It reestablished their confidence in who Jesus was. Now verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, now this was a very wise 
question. Well, first of all, let's back up. In verse 9, Jesus says, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Wisely, Jesus told his disciples not to speak of the transfiguration until after his resurrection. You see, the resurrection was the final confirmation of Jesus' ministry and glory. And until then, if you tried to tell somebody about the transfiguration, they would just think you're crazy. Right? Wouldn't they? Come on. Look at Jesus. His face isn't shining now. I don't see anything funny about his clothes now. Are you trying to tell me that, that, you know, in some sort of science fiction scenario that he starts shining? And Moses and Elijah appeared. Great. Did you get a picture of Moses and Elijah? Would you, did you get him to sign your autograph book, Moses and Elijah? You know, you'd go on. It would seem so unbelievable until you had the final confirmation of Jesus's resurrection. You see, b- before the resurrection, reports of the transfiguration would be more likely to test the faith of those who did not see it rather than strengthen their faith. So having dealt with that, then the disciples asked them, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, the disciples had heard that Elijah must come according to the promise of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Let me read that to you where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Right? It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Elijah's coming first. And the disciples are probably confused at this point. Peter, James, and John are wondering. They go, Jesus, we're kind of confused. We believe you're the Messiah, and we just saw Elijah, but it seems like you came before Elijah. Because we've been following you for a couple years now, and now Elijah comes, but we thought Elijah was coming first. Jesus, can you explain this thing to us? And Jesus explains. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whoever they wish, whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. I find this very interesting. Verse 11, Jesus seems to indicate that there is is a future coming of Elijah, right? Look at verse 11. Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. In other words, it's going to come happen in the future. There may be very variant opinions on what this is. I believe that God will send Elijah to the earth before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That, that, That before the end times, that the book of Revelation describes Two witnesses that will be on the earth. And one of them seems very much like Elijah. And and if it is not actually Elijah come to the earth, then it is another man like John the Baptist who ministers in the spirit and the power of Elijah. No, there is a coming of Elijah yet to come. But at the same time, Jesus points out, if you notice that starting at verse 12, that he says, I tell you that Elijah has come already. In other words, John the Baptist was a representative alive of Elijah in the sense that he ministered in Elijah's spirit and power, just like it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And if you compare their ministries, the ministries of Elijah and John the Baptist were remarkably similar. I mean, Elijah was a man noted as being full of zeal for God. So was John the Baptist. Elijah boldly rebuked sin in high places. So did John the Baptist. 
Elijah called sinners and compromisers to a decision of repentance. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted multitudes in this ministry, and so did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted the attention and the fury of a king and his wife, and so did John the Baptist. Elijah was an austere man living in the wilderness, so was John the Baptist. And Elijah lived in a corrupt time and was used of God to restore failing spiritual life, and so was it true of John the Baptist. So Jesus explains, there is a very real sense in which Elijah has come in the person and the ministry of John the Baptist. Now going on to verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Isn't this so common? After this beautiful, almost literally, mountaintop experience, right? If anything should be called a mountaintop experience, it should be the transfiguration, right? But both in the fact that it actually happened on a mountaintop, and for the fact that it was just filled with glory and, and, and radiance and even a voice from heaven and spectacular things. Talk about a mountaintop experience. You come down from the mountain and what happens? There's some father, first of all, complaining to you. Please, your disciples couldn't do anything with me. Nothing. I asked your disciples, they were no help for me whatsoever. And then, well, what's the problem? Well, my son is severely demon-possessed. Now, This particular boy's epileptic symptoms were demonic in origin. Do I need to point out that not every person's epileptic symptoms are demonically caused, right? I I mean, I, I, I feel almost embarrassed saying that because it's so obvious. We don't go around looking to every condition of epilepsy and say, no, 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 you don't need drug treatments. We need to cast a demon out of you. No, that's foolishness. But there's no doubt that this particular boy, his epileptic-like symptoms were actually caused by an indwelling demonic spirit. Now, the narrative in Mark chapter 9 tells us that the boy was also made deaf and dumb, that is, unable to speak, by this demon. Matthew uses a very interesting word to describe this. Literally, Matthew says that the boy was moonstruck. And that was just an expression of speech used in that ancient language to describe somebody who seemed to have an epileptic condition. So here he is. They come down from the mountain. Now they're in the valley, right? Uh, Up there, they were living and hanging out with the glorified saints. Hey, let's hang out with Moses and Elijah. Come down. Hey, let's hang out with a demon-possessed boy. You know, there, there's the king in his heavenly glory. And now they come down to the loser disciples who couldn't do anything in casting out this demon. Now listen, what happened? The man says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. You're aware of this, aren't you? I don't mean to let you in on a great big secret. I think you already know this, but I'll say it anyway. Sometimes the followers of Jesus fail. Did you know that? You should know it. I I hope it's very familiar to your experience. That the followers of Jesus will fail, but Jesus never fails. And this man was very wise, because when his followers failed, 
he went right to Jesus. Now, I find it very interesting that on previous occasions, these same disciples were able to cast out demons. Yet in this case, they could not cure him. Why? Jesus is going to tell us why later, but I'll sort of bring you the answer beforehand. They could not cure him because this particular demon that inhabited this boy was particularly strong. And maybe I should just say a few words about demonic possession. I can imagine that somebody here tonight, or maybe somebody who listens to this later, might think that demonic possession is just a fantasy. That it just describes some kind of mental illness that a person has, and it has nothing to do with actual demonic spirits that might actually inhabit a person and control their behavior to some extent. Let me just say that if that's what you believe, that's what you believe. But it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there really are evil, malevolent, demonic spirits at loose in this world. And the Bible teaches that it is possible for them to inhabit and somewise control the lives of those who have not uh, given their lives to God, who are not born again by the Spirit of God. I don't have time to explain this tonight. But I believe the Bible very straightforwardly teaches that that a Christian, someone who is born again by the Spirit of God, someone who is the purchased possession of Jesus Christ, cannot be inhabited and controlled by a demonic spirit. It's possible for them to be attacked. It's possible for them to be harassed. It's possible for them to be tormented in an external sense by a demonic spirit, but they cannot be inhabited and controlled. You know, there's a precious promise given to every believer. You know what that promise is? The book of James tells us what it is. Every believer has the promise that they can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that a tremendous promise? Do do you know that's in the Bible? The book of James just says that. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, could you imagine giving that advice to this poor demon-possessed boy? Listen, young man. This is just, just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. No, that prescription, that promise is given only to believers. Because for this man, in some way, he is inhabited and controlled by a demon. However that demon gets out, it won't be just from the decision of the will of that young man, but, but he needs help from the outside to deliver him from that demonic possession. And Jesus was there to give him that help. Now, it seems that the demon that inhabited this young man was particularly strong. Did you know that the Bible tells us that there are ranks of demonic powers? You can look this up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And evidently, some demons are stronger than others. What do I mean by stronger? I mean they're more stubborn, they're more resistant than others. And since the disciples had successfully cast out demons before, apparently this demon was more difficult than most. And listen, this has been the experience of of myself on a few occasions, and more so other people that I've talked with and told me of their experiences, that sometimes they've had a fairly easy time praying for somebody and and delivering a person from some sort of demonic oppression or control or influence upon their life. Other times it's been very difficult. I I remember the story that one friend told me that he encountered a demon-possessed person and he went in there to pray for that person and to minister to them. And the the, the person had all these classic symptoms of demonic possession, speaking in another voice, another personality within them. And, And it seemed to be a very legitimate and a very real case of demonic possession. 
And so the friend thought he knew what he was doing. And he said to the man, speaking to the demon, inhabiting the man, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ that you come out of that man. And do you know what the demon answered back to him from within the man? The demon answered back and he said, I'm not coming out of him in the name of Jesus or in any other name. My friend was absolutely nonplussed. Well, what do I do now? I thought that that would just fix it. Well, what he didn't take into account was that that demon was a liar, was he not? That demon would in fact come out if the name of Jesus was pressed upon him and forced upon him, but by diligence and by prayer. But the demon was trying to intimidate the man back, trying to give up in the battle very quickly, by just saying, well, I'm not going to do that. The demon was a liar, and they always are. But the disciples were utterly powerless before this demon-possessed boy. They were failures. Let me suggest to you that the disciples' failure at this point was good for them. It was good for them to fail. Their failure taught them. It taught them not to get into a rut of mechanical ministry. Don't we do that sometimes? We get into a rut of mechanical ministry. Well, how do you cast out a demon? Well, you know, we did it before. Let's just do it the way we did before. You know, A, B, C, demon be gone. That's it. No, no, no. It's very easy to get in the rut of mechanical ministry. This taught them not to do it. Their failure taught them the great superiority of Jesus, right? And sometimes... When God is mightily using a man or a woman, they'll forget the great superiority of Jesus. Well, Jesus is a a little better than I. No, no, no. no. Jesus is greatly superior to any of his servants. Thirdly, it taught them to wish for the presence of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we need you. Jesus, come down from the mountain. Jesus, walk faster. Jesus, please, come back to us. This father, he's bothering us because we can't deliver his son. And it taught them to come to Jesus with the problem, which they did. I find it interesting, too, that what bothered the disciples and what bothered men was the lack of success that they had in this ministry. What didn't seem to bother them was their lack of faith, which Jesus is going to deal with now, beginning at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Don't you sense there in verse 17 that Jesus is at the very least frustrated with his disciples? You know, his season of ministry before the cross was coming to an end. This was, as we're going to see before the chapter's over, this was about one month before Jesus' crucifixion. The, the, the years of his ministry are almost coming to an end. It's like, guys, I, I would hope you'd catch on better by now. How long will I have to bear with you, you faithless and perverse generation? And so what did Jesus do then? He just simply rebuked the demon and it came out of him. Jesus delivered the demon-possessed boy instantly. It was too hard for the disciples. Was it too hard for Jesus? No. 
that's you see a wonderful difference in authority between Jesus and the disciples. Now, you can't say the disciples had no authority, but they certainly did not have the authority of Jesus. And why was the disciple, were the disciples unsuccessful in their difficulty? Jesus tells us right there in verse 20, where he says, because of your unbelief. That was the reason why they were unable to cast the demon out of the boy. To be successful in a battle against demonic spirits, there must be trust in the Lord God who has complete authority over the demons. That was unbelief. He didn't say, the problem is that you're not strong enough spiritually. You need to be stronger spiritually so that you can battle against him. No, no, no. Your problem is with your faith because it's the power of the Lord God that delivers the boy from the demons. And what you need is a stronger faith connection between you and the Lord God who has this power. And this teaches us something very powerfully, does it not? How many things could it be true of our life that that we do not have or we do not see or that we lack in our particular life because of our unbelief? You understand this, do you not? That there are things that happen or do not happen in the spiritual world according to our faith. We can't have this fatalistic attitude. Jesus didn't say, do you know why that, that, that demon's not out of the boy? Because God has not ordained it. Do you know why the demon's not out of that boy? Because that demon's too strong. Do you know why the demon's not out of that boy? Well, because the demon's in there too long. Do you know why the demon's not out of the boy? It's because the boy doesn't have enough faith. Or the father doesn't have... No, none of those reasons. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, it's because of your unbelief. It really brings us back to a place of humility. Lord, what is it? What... What is it in the spiritual realm around me that is done or is not done because of my particular lack of faith? There was no point in blaming the boy or his father or the demon. No, the point was in saying, listen, Lord, what is it with us? What is it with me? And in response to this, Jesus says in verse 20, that if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. Now, what's the whole thing? Uh, faith as a mustard seed. This is faith that tastes like mustard. Faith? No, it's nothing. That, a mustard seed is very small, is it not? This was the whole point of it. Jesus is telling us that it doesn't take enormous amounts of faith. You, you see, the faith that we must have has more to do with the kind of faith we have more than it has to do with how much faith we have. You think you need a bucket load of faith. You think you need a train load full of faith, a luxury line or full of faith. No, no, no. Far more important than the amount of faith is the kind of faith it is. A small amount of faith, as small as a mustard seed, can accomplish great things if that small amount of faith is placed in a great and mighty God. Now look, little faith can accomplish great things, but great faith can accomplish even greater things. What matters most is what our faith is in. It's the object of our faith. Stop looking to your faith. Look instead to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. The, the, the eye can't see itself, right? You don't go around looking at your own eye. You'd have to put a mirror in front of yourself to see that. 
No, normally you don't see your own eye. Your eye sees the world around you. So it is our own faith should not be looking at itself, but it should be looking steadfastly upon Jesus. And he said, even with this small amount of faith, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there. Very interesting. One commentator, a great Greek commentator I found named E.B. E. B. Bruce, he says that this was a popular expression of speech in that day, but it was usually applied to very distinguished rabbis. They would say of a rabbi who was very distinguished, so great, he goes, well, he can move mountains. He can move a mountain and see. And you know what Jesus says? He goes, no, no, no. This great power does not belong to some prestigious rabbi. It belongs to everybody who has faith in the living God. That's our property as well. But notice Jesus tacks on at verse 21 that this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We show our faith in God and our reliance on God through prayer and fasting. It displays that we are occupied with Jesus, that we are dependent upon Jesus. Great prayer and great fasting display earnestness before God, seriousness before God that, that brings great answer to prayer. And listen, oftentimes the problem when we pray is that we pray with no passion. We, we pray as if we don't care at all. I found myself praying like this sometimes. It's almost as if I say to God, God, you know, I really don't care about this. Would you care about it for me? Because I don't care. No problem is that that's neglecting one of the chief functions of prayer, and that is to bring my heart into synchronization with the heart of God. The prayer and fasting, though, those demonstrate something different. Prayer and fasting demonstrate great willingness to identify with the afflicted person. This person is afflicted. I want to afflict myself. And so I'm going to pray and fast. Prayer and fasting also demonstrates great appreciation of the strength of the demonic world. I appreciate that demonic powers are strong. And so if I'm going to win in this battle, I've got to take it seriously and be willing to make sacrifices. Prayer and fasting demonstrate great dependence upon God. God, I'm not even going to depend upon the food I eat. I'm going to depend upon you. And prayer and fasting also demonstrate great desire to fight and sacrifice for the sake of deliverance. God, I care about this so much that it is more important to me than the food I eat. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, if you want to overcome the devil, then sometimes you have to first overcome heaven by prayer. Do you know what I mean by that? To overcome heaven by prayer. You almost sense reluctance in heaven, but you're like Jacob holding on to the angel saying, I'm not going to let go until I have your answer. You've got to overcome heaven by prayer. And then Spurgeon said, and you need to conquer yourself by self-denial. Prayer overcomes heaven. Fasting overcomes ourself. And that sees an answer to prayer. Verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now these frequent reminders about Jesus' suffering and resurrection were disbelieved and forgotten by the disciples until after the resurrection. Very strange, Jesus repeatedly told them, and he tells them now more and more frequently as the time grows shorter before 
his crucifixion and resurrection. And in fact, he tells him very specifically here on verse 23 or verse 22, he says, and the third day he will be raised up. Jesus rarely told his disciples about his coming death without also telling them of his coming resurrection, right? They didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand it. They didn't grab onto it, but he told them. Verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. You get this? They're back in Capernaum. Now, one thing you should know about Capernaum, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew told us that Jesus moved from Nazareth, where he grew up and lived until he was about 30. He moved to Capernaum. Capernaum was where he lived. And who else lived in Capernaum? Peter lived in Capernaum. Matter of fact, today you can go and see what is thought to be the remains of Peter's house there in Capernaum. Really a lovely thing to see when you go into the Holy Land and when you go to the region of Galilee. So they come into Capernaum. Peter's walking the streets. And the people who received the temple tax came to Peter. Now the temple tax was a normal tax or fee that applied to every Jewish man. And faithful Jewish men paid this obligation. Some people sought to escape the responsibility, but but faithful Jewish men paid the obligation every year. It was sort of a matter of controversy among some of the Jews, but normally they paid it. Now, you could normally pay this at the Passover festival in Jerusalem, right? You go to the Passover festival, you pay the temple tax. All those stalls for the money changers at the temple, that was so that people could pay their temple tax. And most people, if you were going to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, you would pay the temple tax when you went to Jerusalem. But if you weren't going to go to Jerusalem, at the outlying areas, such as in Capernaum, around the Sea of Galilee, they would have special tax collectors who would go and collect the tax. And that's what the guy's doing. He's going around the temple tax. And they would do this, by the way, about one month before the Passover. That's why we know this is about a month before Jesus' crucifixion. Because Jesus was crucified at Passover, and now that's the time when they would be collecting the temple tax in the outlying areas. So the guy comes up to Peter. Hey, you going to pay the temple tax? Does your master pay it? And Peter goes, well, yeah, I guess he pays it. Comes home. Jesus knew exactly what had happened. Peter, I want to know from you. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said they take it from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And Peter's like, oh no, I gave the wrong answer. Jesus isn't obliged to pay this tax. Now, by the way, you should know this. That rabbis were exempt from the tax. And Jesus being a rabbi, although perhaps his rabbinical credentials weren't recognized by everybody, but Jesus absolutely being a rabbi was free from paying this tax. So you almost get the feeling that Jesus is playing with him. Peter, shouldn't have you known that I don't have to pay this tax? Maybe you do. Peter, this is an obligation you owe, but I don't owe it for two reasons. First of all, I'm a rabbi. Secondly, I am a son This is a temple tax. 
It's for the support of my father's house. I don't have to pay taxes to live or to visit my own father's house. And so he says the father doesn't require it of the son. Now you can just imagine at this moment Peter feels terrible. Oh no, I put Jesus under obligation to pay this thing and we really don't have any money anyway. What are we going to do? How is this going to be provided for? How is this going to be paid? Verse 27. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, Jesus was not obligated to pay the tax under the principle that he had just discussed with Peter. He was a son, not a servant. He did not have to pay the temple tax. Yet Jesus also recognized the importance of avoiding needless controversy. Jesus was not afraid of controversy with the religious leaders, was right? We find him conflicting with the religious leaders a lot. Yet Jesus did not pursue every controversy. Some things he just said, listen, we'll just let it pass. We'll pay it so that they would not be offended, uh, the people who questioned, those people would not be offended. So go, cast in a hook. Now, this would be easy for Peter, right? What was Peter by trade? Was he a baker? Was he a carpenter? No, Peter was a fisherman. Except what kind of fishing did Peter do? Did he do fishing with hooks? No. As a commercial fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, he would fish with nets. Yet Peter has to humble himself. Could you imagine how it looked to his fishing friends? Peter, you're fishing again with a hook. Now, I don't imagine that commercial fishermen who go out to the sea every day and are pulling in hundreds of fish on nets, that they like to go out for some relaxation and go fish. I don't think so. Maybe there's a few. But I just imagine Peter being laughed at by his fishermen companions when he's whistling down to the shore with a hook and a string and he drops it in. And what happens? He catches one single fish at a time, which must have seemed very strange for Peter. To catch one fish at a time was not the way that he liked to fish. And he pulls it up. And what was in it? Just as Jesus said, he opened it up and there was a gold coin within the mouth of the, or a coin. It says, doesn't say a gold coin. It just says, when you've opened the mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Um, William Barclay is a very interesting commentator. He's a guy who has very good things to say about the ancient Greek language, about uh, historical customs, but he likes to explain away supernatural events. You know what William Barclay says about this? He says that uh, Jesus wasn't telling Peter to literally go with a hook and fish and find money in the mouth of a fish. He was telling Peter, go back to the fishing for a day. You'll get plenty of money in the fish's mouths to pay your dues. And so Peter went out and went back to the fishing work for a day, and he sold the fish that he caught, and he got the money for it that they needed. I don't think so. That's not what the text clearly tells us. They're trying to explain away that something that needs no explaining away. I like what Matthew Poole, another old commentator, said. He said, how this money came into the mouth of the fish is a very idle dispute considering that he that speaks was the creator of all things how did the money get into the mouth of the fish i don't know maybe god created the coin in the fish's mouth 
Maybe God sent a little smaller fish to carry a coin and put it into the fish's mouth. Maybe he made the fish just swallow something bright and shiny on the floor of the sea. Who knows how the coin came into the fish's mouth. But Peter caught that fish and he said, Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Now, it's not every day or it's not any day that someone catches a fish and takes a coin out of its mouth. But Jesus used God's provision to pay his taxes. As a man, he paid it. But but as God, he caused the fish to cough up the shekel that he needed to pay it. Now, there's two questions that come to my mind, or two comments. First of all, we don't know why Jesus didn't tell Peter to provide enough to pay for all the disciples. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Although I will say, Matthew Poole seemed to have a very good explanation. Matthew Poole's explanation was this, that it was only Peter and Jesus who were residents of Capernaum. Peter lived there and Jesus lived there. This was the Capernaum, the collection of the temple tax for those who lived in Capernaum. And the other disciples had other addresses. They did not live or have their residency in Capernaum. Well, maybe that was the case. Yet, Jesus did pay for Peter. Isn't this a wonderful picture? Did Jesus owe this debt? Not at all. He was a son, right? He was not under obligation. So what did Jesus do? Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. And at the same time, he paid the debt for Peter, who did owe the debt, right? He paid them both with the same coin, paying a debt that he did not owe and the debt on behalf of someone who actually did owe it. Does that remind anybody of anything? Is that not exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross? He owed no debt. We were the ones who owed it. Yet Jesus said, I will pay the debt, and with the same coin I pay a debt I do not owe, I will pay it for the one who does not know. I love it that there were not two coins in the fish's mouth, right? One for Jesus and one for Peter. No, he insisted, I will pay it with the same coin. And with the same coin that Jesus paid the debt that he did not owe, he paid the debt for us that we do owe. Well, we're coming closer and closer to the end. It begins to move very fast as we come into chapter 18. But in chapter 18... We deal with great themes, great themes having to do mostly with attitudes and relationships among the people of God. But that's for us next week. Now, maybe we should just be thankful for the power of Jesus, right? The the power of Jesus in his glory transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. The, The power of Jesus to instantly cast out a demon when his disciples had failed. And the power and love of Jesus to pay a debt he did not owe and the same payment to be on behalf of those who did owe the debt that they could not pay. Father, that is our prayer. That you would put us in great appreciation of the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the greatness of your work and how you extend it to us by faith. Lord, I pray that in the hours ahead of us tonight, in our hours before sleep, 
that you would speak to us about where we need to trust you more, about where we lack faith, about the unbelief that is in our life. We want to see you do great things in and through us, and we know, Lord, that faith in you, the living, glorious God, that is the key. So teach us as we look to you and as we follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen.